Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. As our climate changes, we need newer and cleaner ways to generate and store electricity. Now we look at one of the most touted future technologies, hydrogen fuel cells, and the challenges that are faced with the production of those, how it can be applied to things like cars and grids, and how we can make the overall process cleaner and more efficient. Plus we ask the question, will the electricity grid be able to survive radical climate change? When it comes to futuristic sounding technologies for power, for cars, for power plants, you name it, one of the things that gets thrown around a lot in science fiction, and always on the cutting edge of science news, is hydrogen fuel cells. Now, that's certainly true because Toyota has now produced a car with the literal name Future, Mirai, which is based on hydrogen fuel cells. But hydrogen fuel cells, whilst slowly gaining traction, have a lot of challenges that go along with them. I mean, we've had them since 1838, where they were first discussed in the December 1838 edition of the London and Edinburgh Philosophical Magazine and Journal of Science, where Welsh physicist and lawyer William Grove outlined the concept which were going to become the first fuel cells. I mean, NASA popularised the use of them many years later as a power source for space satellites and the space shuttle. But trying to find a cheap and efficient way to produce power with a hydrogen fuel cell is incredibly difficult. And chief among these problems is obviously the expense. Now, the challenge for some hydrogen fuel cell systems is that for the catalyst, they use something made out of precious metals, such as platinum. And also the anoplates, the bipolar plates, they can also be quite expensive in material. All in all, 70% of the system's total cost comes from making these exchange membranes, the catalyst and the plates, which compared to other energy sources makes it quite expensive. Although some manufacturers are pretty cagey with their numbers, they basically need to halve and more in cost just to get over the comparison to natural gas or other forms of electricity. That doesn't even go into fact to consider the difficulties you need to have when trying to put a hydrogen fuel cell into cars. Well, aside from the fact that hydrogen burns with a clear flame, making it difficult for emergency services workers, you also need a reasonably pressurised tank, which is much thicker and heavier than a traditional tank, to put into a car. And all of these things make it pretty impressive that Japan's automotive company Toyota has produced the Mirai, which has around a 700 kilometre range using hydrogen fuel cells. But it's far from widespread technology, and there are a lot of challenges to it most including the cost and the way you produce the hydrogen itself. For example, if you want to produce hydrogen for your hydrogen fuel cell, you need to undergo the electrolysis process. That generally involves electricity. Or maybe you can capture it using other fossil fuels, burning them, for example. Trying to extract the hydrogen to be the source for your hydrogen fuel shells can actually, unless you use a particularly green form of electricity generation, be comparatively carbon intensive. So these are the challenges that exist out there, but what solutions are out there to try and improve this? Well, for example, let's talk about the topic of transportation and storage of hydrogen. As we know, it's a gas, which is great, but when transporting something as a gas, it's entirely possible that it would all go up in smoke. Hydrogen, as we know, is particularly combustible. So whilst transporting it as a gas means it 
you can get a lot for a reasonable volume. The problem is you need a really big steel tank, which adds a lot of weight, and you need to carefully pressurize it to a super high pressure in order to cram a lot in to transport it efficiently. So that's one of the reasons why transporting hydrogen around before it becomes into a fuel cell drives up the cost of a fuel cell just because you need to do a lot of effort just to get the raw material before you can convert it into a fuel cell. So what can you do to make that better? Well, researchers from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel have been working on a new type of chemical-based storage system. And this was recently reported in the journal Agniwanta Chemi. It's a liquid hydrogen carrier system which has a huge capacity for squeezing in and storing a lot of hydrogen. But the base chemicals used in it are actually simple or relatively abundant organic compounds. So this is, relies on the idea of storing the hydrogen inside a natural system. This is the way nature actually stores and uses hydrogen. Take a biological cell. You finally adjust the chemical compounds to bind and then release the hydrogen as it builds up and release the hydrogen to be used by more cells. All these biological processes are catalyzed by enzymes. Now, powerful catalysts, which actually can mediate the conversion from one form to another of hydrogen, have been developed in chemical laboratories. One is called the ruthenium pincer catalyst, which is a soluble complex or solution of ruthenium, which is an organic ligand developed by David Milstein and his colleagues at the Weizmann Institute. Now, using this catalyst, you can actually then get the reaction of unlocking and storing hydrogen in inside of simple organic chemicals. Now this is incredibly important because if you can find a nice and efficient and safe way to transport hydrogen around in large volumes, then you actually make it a lot easier to develop fuel cells and distribute the fuel needed to power those fuel cells. Now for their base, Milston and his research team used the chemical combines ethylene diamide and methanol. Now when these two molecules react, pure hydrogen is released. The other reactant product is a compound called ethylenura. The theoretical capacity of this liquid organic hydrogen carrier system, or LOHC, is around 6.5% per weight. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but compared to other methods, that's incredibly high. You do get a pretty strong yield from this process, almost 100%, so it is reasonably efficient in the conversion process. But the challenge still here is that the catalyst involved is reasonably still difficult. Particular material used as the catalyst does have a slow reaction time and does require a higher temperature in order to operate. Now these two things, combined with the fact that it's a rare and more complex chemical in the first place, make it not the ideal catalyst, but it's still better than platinum. But to make it really green, we need to find newer and better catalysts as the authors outlined. However, the storage medium now is no longer a massive steel tank, but a simple, cheap and readily producible organic compound. So definitely an improvement in the process of cleaning up hydrogen fuel cells. challenges as mentioned earlier with hydrogen fuel cells is finding a way to actually produce the hydrogen in a green way and in a cheap way. Now researchers and economists at the Technical University of Munich TUM and the University of Mannheim and Stanford University have all worked together and looked at the market situations in both Germany and Texas, two places that you wouldn't immediately link in your head, and looked at how you could find a way to produce hydrogen efficiently and cheaply. 
Now, hydrogen is not just used for fuel cells, it can also be used for fertilizer production, as coolant for power stations, or as we said, in fuel cells for cars. So it's incredibly versatile. And at the moment, most hydrogen in industrial applications at least is produced using fossil fuels, mostly from natural gas and coal. If you try to do this in an environmentally friendly energy system, maybe you look at hydrogen in a different way. Not only is it an important storage medium, but also as a means of balancing power in a distribution network. If you have excess wind and solar energy, it has to go somewhere. Now, in Australia, we're investing heavily in what's referred to as pumped hydro. Since when you would produce electricity, you have to use it at the time it's produced. You can't store it, unless, of course, you have a battery. But finding a battery big enough to absorb an entire hydroelectric dam or power station or massive wind farms equivalent of energy is quite difficult. So pumped hydro is an example of basically pumping water back uphill when you have lots of electricity and then metering it out and recapturing that energy through hydroelectric dams on the way back when you don't have a lot of sun or wind. That's one mechanism. But these researchers point out that hydrogen could act as a similar role, as a buffer. You could convert that wind and solar energy through the process of electrolysis into hydrogen, store the electricity as a form of hydrogen fuel cell and then dump it back out when you need to. This process is known as power to gas. The hydrogen can recover the energy later, basically by being used as a fuel in a fuel cell. Or you could blend that hydrogen into a natural gas pipeline to make a synthesized gas rather than natural gas. But the problem is, everyone faces this question. If you are an energy producer, should or even just a power to gas converter, should you sell the energy or should you convert it if you've got this energy available? So these researchers have worked together and published a study. It's a feasibility analysis on a way to have a zero emission and profitable hydrogen production system. And they did this with a model based one in Germany and another model based in Texas. And they published this in the journal Nature Energy. Now, the key element to this technology is basically having a facility that can convert power to gas but not just one that can do the conversion from power to gas, but one that can also feed the grid when it needs to, which means the operator can decide at any time should it sell the energy or should they convert it into hydrogen. This means you can actually monitor in real time the wind power output and prices on the electricity market and then make a decision, well, actually, it's better to store right now and sell later when I know the prices are going to be higher because the wind's going to drop off. And when you do that, you can actually make it be incredibly, not just efficient, but profitable, which if you're trying to fund an expensive new piece of power infrastructure, it's not a bad way to justify it. Now, in Germany and Texas, you could actually implement this system today and make a reasonable money, especially on this medium and small scale. Industries such as the metal and electronics industry, or if you have a fleet of forklift trucks on a factory site, you could be using this kind of microgrid-style technology with this power converter reasonably well to power you through those buffers and troughs. You could use fuel cells for trucks and ships in a larger-scale system, which is what the researchers are suggesting could be possible by 2030.
But all of this is just a blueprint. It shows that what you can do when you consider the way of applying a technology like hydrogen fuel cells to a new application, in this case, almost microgrids, small grids, down to a business or a site level in industrial power use, and finding a way to make it actually profitable in the same way as putting solar panels on the roof of your large warehouse with a large battery bank can not only save you energy, it can also help you recoup the costs. And all these kind of approaches are necessary if we're trying to find a way to better manage our climate system going forward. But they do pose challenges to our infrastructure. And that's what we're going to talk about next. How the grid will cope with the changed climate and all these renewables pumping around through it. So Europe has undertaken a massive investment in renewable energy and technologies. For example, it's quite common now in the whole of the continent of Europe to have days where there's coal-free production. Some of the Nordic countries have had many runs of days with relying only on wind and solar energy. These are great things. But how will all this work in a changed climate? Because as our climate changes and it gets hotter, we have more natural disasters and crazy weather conditions. With sea levels rising, the earth itself is going to change. When you put in a wind farm or a solar power plant, you have to model the for and forecast the type of environment you're going to put it in. And that's really important because that helps you design where and where you exactly place your wind turbines or solar panels. And that helps you, well, design the best possible power plant. But as the climate changes, does that still work? And researchers from the Aarhus University in Denmark have been looking at well, what is forecast for Europe in the year 2100? And trying to apply all the different types of climate models based on only historical data and also ones factoring in anthropogenic climate change and looking at how the electricity grid performs in Europe under those conditions. Because of course, it's going to get hotter, electricity demand is going to increase as the European population grows, but also so will demand for things like air conditioning because the average temperature is going to rise. So the key metrics that these researchers looked into were the need and capacity for dispatchable electricity, which can be stored and used on demand by the power grid operators, the benefit of the electrical transmission, the benefit of electrical storage, and the variability of electrical production and consumption. By judging all these things and building a whole large-scale model of the entirety of Europe, they could examine how different technology mixes adapted and coped with the changed climate in the year 2100. So sometimes a, a forecaster will take an idea and say, well, what technologies can we use to meet the electricity demand in the most cost-effective way? And that's what this team of research, including Shmao Kozakanen, PhD fellow in the Department of Engineering at Aarhus University, did. In this study, they seek to understand how the climate change actually affects the overall production of electricity and the grid's capacity to meet that demand, regardless of the technology mix. And that's quite important, because that way you can actually look at what the impact of climate change is on the technology, rather than trying to justify the economics of a particular style of technology or plant. And what they found is pretty interesting. Despite the new weather extremes predicted by future climate scenarios, the study didn't find a large difference in the key metrics for renewable energy systems, which suggests that even historical weather patterns or future change climate change patterns, the power plants that are designed in place at the moment from wind and solar will be able to meet those demands and withstand extreme weather events. 
The only issue is that, yes, they're designed to withstand them now, but they'll just have to withstand it more often in the future. But it's actually interesting because when they looked at the whole model of energy consumption, they found that the electricity demand for Europe will actually decrease slightly, which is pretty funny to think about. But actually, it's because the demand for heating will actually decrease as the planet warms. Of course, yes, the demand for air conditioning in Europe will increase, but it's comparatively a smaller increase as the consumption from energy for heating is. So there's kind of a counterbalance effect going on. And this counterbalancing effect will help make up for the fact that there will be slight decreases in wind and solar energy output in the models for that area of the European latitudes. So European weather might require changes to renewable energy generators as part of the system. Maybe future wind turbines would need to withstand more types of aggressive storms because, well, those storms will become more common. Not a one in a hundred year event, but maybe one in ten. And solar panels might need protection against super hail storms. But in general, large-scale infrastructures with backup power plant capacity should be pretty much relatively unchanged by the level of climate change. And this is good news, because whether we like it or not, climate change is real and it's happening. But hopefully, with a well-designed grid, we can adjust and cope through and address that before it becomes too out of hand. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. We found out about hydrogen fuel cells, how to make them more efficient and more profitable, as well as ways we can model the changes in our grid due to climate change and improve energy security. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.